Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So last episode, we spoke a little bit about AR glasses once again. And I guess the very first time this sort of thing came up on the show was, was way back in, in episode 19. It's actually an episode aptly titled A Digital Loop. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about sort of my, my earlier experiments trying to, to make a, a digital loop. And I was using a prototype from a Japanese firm called Scalar that gets you a head-mounted display. And I'd wired that all up through a, a camera and an external loop. IWC is now going to begin live streaming some of, of their watchmakers' work through a, a digital loop, very similar but far more streamlined than, than what I had come up with back then. The first time I had seen this was uh, actually a, just a, a small one-minute teaser during Watches and, and Wonders, and there really wasn't enough information on it, or at least it wasn't answering some of the questions I had about it. I think this is uh, an interesting piece of tech, and it's neat to see IWC using this to promote the craft of watchmaking and actually bring people into their manufacture during COVID-19 without actually having to physically be present and actually end up being able to be present in a way that really wasn't feasible before, actually getting behind the loop of a watchmaker. Yeah, this uh, cyber loop is set up in such a way it's a, a larger headband. It's almost like the um, the optivisors that I see in terms of size and uh, whatnot on somebody's head. So it's, it's much larger than a traditional watchmaker's loop would be. However, it incorporates a digital sensor inside of it, which allows the uh, it to capture exactly what's being seen by the watchmaker through the loop. And I think that's a great idea. I've it doesn't appear as though they're planning on trying to market this to the rest of the watchmaking world, which is unfortunate. And I hope somebody takes this and runs with it. It would be great to be able to have something like this, be able to stream a live view of what you're doing from the loop. Uh, we've talked a little bit about some of what I'm doing here in the shop and, and studio and trying to film it. Uh, one of the things that I would like to do eventually, I, I do have a, a streaming setup for being able to live stream from my bench. And uh, the setup I have allows me to put four different cameras on my control board and allow me to switch easily between the different views. I think it would be great to be able to put one of the views as actually through the loop. You know, most of the time, it's that's not necessarily what you want to see because that, that might be a little bit disorienting, you know, the view as I'm moving my head around and I'm trying to find something or whatever. But being able to swap to that view every once in a while would be really good because right now... Uh, that view that I'm experimenting with, sort of a close-up of the watch while I'm working on it, is a camera that's in front of me on the other side of the movement from me, and it's zoomed in using a macro lens to see what's going on. And so that's not really the same perspective as what I see mm -hmm. as the watchmaker. Um, so I think it would be great to be able to get this and be able to actually project what I'm seeing as the watchmaker onto YouTube, onto Instagram Live, whatever, Twitch, I can compete with some of the uh, the kids on Twitch and their live streaming. You know, so it'd be interesting to do that. And then, you know, you think about it from a teaching perspective, right? Like, again, when, when I've done my BHI courses, John is sitting up front with his, um, you know, with a microscope, you know, with a camera on top of it. And he's able to show what's going on. But the reality is he can't actually work on the piece while it's under the microscope. It's the wrong perspective for him to be able to work as the watchmaker. And the, frankly, the microscope is in the way most of the time. So it's a really awkward setup in that respect. 
So oftentimes he would be doing something and then he would put it under the microscope and he could sort of show you where he was working. But it's really, really tough to actually show what's going on. So, uh, you know, we talked about pin regulating a, uh, a balance uh, spring. Well, you know, being able to see what he's looking at and focused on and showing exactly what he's doing with those pins would be invaluable, right, as a, as a student watching him do that. And it's something that's just, it's nearly impossible to do because trying to hold it under the microscope and then him looking at the screen of them, you know, and then trying to do it while he's looking at the screen, it's just too awkward to actually do. But being able to actually do this through the loop that you're looking through would be quite a quite a, an interesting setup. Hmm. Yeah, well, live streaming would certainly add a, a, a mental heaviness to, to, to the project because you do bring up a, a good point there uh, about... It, the fact that it could be a little disorienting looking through the perspective of a watchmaker. Because one thing I did notice in recording some of what I was doing with my scalar setup mm-hmm. is that there there are times where you are, as a watchmaker, switching eyes yes. to, to look at something on the bench. And then all of a sudden, the the view through the, the loop becomes all, all disjointed and, and out of focus mm-hmm. and it can actually move around qu- quite a bit. Um, so I Back then, the the GoPros didn't exist, so I, I would actually be interested to to try this again with something that actually has some image stabilization hmm. with it. Um, and then, additionally, yeah, you, if you were to live stream, you you would have to actually be very conscious about switching before yes. actually doing the, the mental switch of moving from one eye to to the other. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know it may not work well as a live streaming setup, but. One of the nice things with the, you know, with the setup that I've got is that you can record all four streams. You can then use it later on. So you don't necessarily have to live stream with it. You can just use it as a production switcher, basically. Mm -hmm. So that might actually be a better, you know, a better use for it is to use it as sort of a production switcher and film everything. And then afterwards, you could go in and edit it and turn it into something useful. So you could, uh, you know, before you start swinging your head around looking for something else, you could cut away from that and and so that you wouldn't have to see that. Uh, and, you know, going down the road of the GoPro setup, uh, there's actually an interesting company here in Ottawa uh, that's that's fairly obscure, but it's uh, they do interesting things with GoPros. They've actually torn apart uh, GoPros for the last, oh, I think they started with maybe the GoPro Hero 4. So it's been going for a while now, four or five years. And uh, they tear out the original lens element from it and put a new lens mount on front of it. So you can put a C-mount lens onto it. And in fact, because of that, you can get um, lens adapters. So if you want to, you can put your full Nikon or Canon lens from your DSLR onto a GoPro. And instead of getting that ultra-wide lens shot that you, you know that's t- typical of, a, of an action camera, you could put a 400-millimeter telescopic lens on it or a macro lens or whatever. I'm not sure you'd want to wear that on your head. But. <laughs> well, okay. That, that's, <laughs> that's a little bit awkward if you're trying to I – can, I can imagine riding down the, the highway with a motorcycle, uh, you know, and have that mounted on your helmet. That might be a bit awkward. But it, it means that you have a lot of options. And in fact, it's, it's an option that I've thought about for mounting on top of my microscope. Uh, I do want to be able to film some of the – turning that I'm doing at my watchmaker's lathe and I have a microscope set up on top of it that I could easily do that with and right now I have a a setup where I could put my GH5 on top of it but it's a a bit awkward and uh, you know just because of the size of it 
it's not necessarily the best setup for that. I thought about putting one of these modified GoPros up there, and I could leave it as a dedicated camera on top of my microscope and get good 4K footage out of it and uh, and be able to use that. But, you know, that's the sort of thing you could probably use and modify for, for this kind of a you know, this kind of a setup as well, if you wanted to be able to try and do something through uh, through a loop view. So what is the the name of this company? I haven't heard of this. Oh, Backbone is the name of the company. I should have mentioned that earlier. Yeah, they, they do a bunch of interesting stuff, and uh, it, I, it immediately voids your GoPro warranty. I will just say that right now. Why, why would it do that? <laughs> uh, at least recently, they've only, they used to sell kits so that you could do the modification yourself. And most recently, they've, mod- they've gone to a model where you just buy the GoPro from them pre-modified. And you're paying a little bit more for it, but they've already done the work. Um, because you are going in and digging out the electronics and replacing some of the face plates and things like that. So there is a, there's a little bit of hacking about that you're doing inside of your brand new action camera. Uh, but it is a, it is an interesting little setup and it's uh, something I'm, I'm considering getting one, as I said, for, for the shop here, just as a dedicated camera that's, that's for specific things like the, um, like the microscope, which has a C-mount on it conveniently. So it would be uh, it'd be an interesting little uh, interesting little project, I think. Back when I was piecing together my, my little project in the, the first decade of this millennium, it, it, just the idea of, of shooting 4K wasn't even something that was on my, no. my radar. <laughs> uh, I had a hard enough time getting a, a good HD sure. camera that, that was small enough to actually fit and, and be mounted and, and to get sort of the, the optics that, that I was after. Mm-hmm. And even that, I was only recording at 720p. It's funny that you can compare the IWC setup to an optimizer because that's actually what I use. Because the, the Scalar, um, the screen on that fits over top of a, just a standard pair of glasses. Mm. One of the nice things about the optimizers is that jewelers who wear glasses and whatnot, yeah. they just throw an optimizer over top and, and they've got that two sets of, of corrective and magnifying lenses on there. So I put the camera on and a loop on an optimizer mm. and then had the, the Scalar behind that so it was actually quite a, a clumsy setup and, and literally in some places held it together with with like duct tape and, and zip ties one thing that also kind of bothered me about the the setup that i had was that i, I had this wire trickling down mm. my back and then off to uh, a setup where i was actually piping the imagery from the the camera back into to the scalar and it looks like this Cyberloop from IWC also has a, a wire hanging down yeah. uh, the back of the watchmaker. And I don't know if that's to, to pipe the video feed or to power it or, or what that's for, but uh, they, they clearly haven't quite solved that, that side of the, the, the problem yet either. Maybe battery or a power option, because I think they mentioned Bluetooth connectivity. So I suspect that the video is probably going via Bluetooth to another device, but I think it's probably power because anything like this, if you wanted to keep it running for more than half an hour, 45 minutes is going to need some, some serious battery power. Mm-hmm. And and the batteries get heavy. That's one thing. <laughs> Another one of the reasons it's just, it was, uh, yeah, it gets heavy there on your, your head. Yeah. The, the batteries and the, the camera and all the different gear that's, that's up there. You certainly wouldn't want to be working in a setup like this all day. No. Now that may be a different story with the, the cyber loop, but uh, yeah, I'd love to learn more about it. Most particularly, I'm, I'm curious about the the watchmaker's vantage point because mm-hmm. in the this short video clip they've shown and, and the few press images they've shown you, you don't really get to see the business end of it and, and what the watchmaker is actually seeing you can see that there is a, a camera lens 
sort of central within the, the loop there. Uh, but I don't know if the watchmaker's using a, a prism, as you've mentioned to me uh, off the show, to look straight through the loop or whether they have a screen in there like I had with the, the scalar. Mm. And, and another downside of that is that with the screen is that the, the resolution isn't going to be as good as what you're getting looking at something in real life. Um, so you will pick up some pixel artifacts and, and whatnot. And I really liked that I could zoom mm. using that system, but the, the clarity was not as clean and clear as I'd get with, say, a 10X or a 20X loop. Yeah, you also have to be careful there because you're getting uh, just a little bit of delay as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're it, All that processing is going to be a bit of a delay, and that's why like I've tried with my with my lathe setup with the microscope over top of it i've actually tried turning by using the camera above the microscope and a screen in front of me and even outputting at let's say 60 hertz it is still not refreshing fast enough there's still enough of a delay between what's happening on the you know on on the tool itself what's happening in real life versus what i'm seeing on the screen so even though i can get a nice crisp 4k image out of the setup that i have it's still not good enough for being able to actually turn and, and do things in real life. So there, there is always that element of, um, of slight delay as well going on there that you, that you have to deal with anytime you're, you're trying to see what's going on on screen. So for in your microscopes, do you know how the optical splitting is happening there? Is that with a prism? Or? I haven't really dug into it, and, uh, I, but I, th- I think it's probably using some kind of a prism to, to split the, the optical path so that you're getting, uh, you're getting some of it going to the eyepieces and some of it going up straight up and the view to the camera is straight up and down through the optics uh there there is also no eyepiece on there so the magnification is a little bit different between what you're seeing through the eyepieces and what the camera is seeing because it doesn't have any kind of an eyepiece to uh to provide um you know adjusted optics through that so it is a slightly different view than what you actually see I'm about to hit a backbone and get a modern take on mm-hmm. my little hack together project from years ago. Uh, I just need need to find a, a GoPro to, to donate to the cause. Yeah. Well, the, again, you can you can get it straight from them. So uh, well, not as a loop. No, 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 no. no. But you could, uh, you know, we could we could get one and, and start modifying it. You mentioned C mounts there, and I, I saw you you received a, a little package with with some fancy new C mounts and. A fancy new camera sensor for a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, going down the same road of of hacking together camera systems. Actually, maybe this is a an alternative to to what you were trying to do. Um, there's a, a new add on for the Raspberry Pi, the mini computer systems that are out there. I guess not even mini computers. They're like what Pico computers. They're they're tiny little things. And uh, there for years there has been a camera sensor option for the Raspberry Pi, which has been miserable. It's like two megapixels or three megapixels or something like that. And it's, it's um, it, it just ridiculously, uh, you know, under resolution for what, you know, for what people want to do with it. And so recently they brought out an, an advanced module, which has a 12 megapixel camera in it. And it's designed primarily for video, not stills. Um, something stills wise, you'd probably want a higher resolution than that. But uh, 12, mix of, 12 megapixels still gets you pretty reasonable resolution for a lot of work, and uh, it's using a C-mount on it for lenses. And uh, for people who may not be familiar with C-mount lenses, if you're if you're into photography, uh, they're really typical on a lot of the uh, CCTV camera setups that are out there. So when you go into a store 
and you see those, you know, sort of those boxy cameras with a little lens on the front of it. Those are, those are typically C-mount lenses. And they were also really popular with filmmakers, um, you know, quite a, quite a ways back. So you can get vintage C-mount lenses quite easily. They're often very inexpensive. I mean, I think the, the one that I got with my kit was maybe $35. It wasn't, wasn't a horribly expensive lens. Yeah, this is a, this is sort of a kit with just the, you know, when you're looking at it, you're really just looking at the PCB with a cable coming out of it and the C-mount on the front of it. So it is not a finished product by any stretch of the imagination. The idea is that you actually build your own project around it and, and put it into whatever, whatever project you're working on. Yeah, when it first launched, it was actually the, the day after I had helped my, my son fix a digital camera we'd given him. Uh, a number of years ago, he, he dropped it and, and banged the the lens up. And it's one of those telescoping lenses that you, you get on like a, a pocket digital camera. Mm. So we took that to pieces and put it all back together. And uh, very shortly after that, my, my daughter, who's three, came up to me and said, I want to build my own camera, Dad. <laughs> and uh, the very next day, uh, I saw this this drop from the Raspberry Pi. And I, I was tempted to pick it up, but... Uh, it, seemed like a little too much money to, to sink into a, a project uh, for, for my three-year-old. So I ended up getting her uh, just another little digital camera that, that mm-hmm. she could use and, and play around with. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day we'll we'll make our, our own camera from the ground up. But uh, this is a really neat uh, add-on for the Raspberry Pi. I was quite taken by it when, when I first saw it. It, it really appealed to me. And uh, in my case, it's a project that I've, it's for a project that I've been wanting to build for a number of years. And one of the things that's been putting me off is actually the camera setup. So We've spoken a lot about uh, digitizing books and digitizing print media before. I, I have a large uh, reference library that uh, just isn't available digitally. Most of the books are out of print, or they're large books that um, that the the publisher just does not want to put a digital copy out of out for. And in this case, um, there's been a good sort of community project of building a freestanding book scanner that you can build yourself and will allow you to to scan a book at a relatively decent pace. I think most of the people that were working on it, they were getting around 400 pages an hour they were able to scan, which is pretty good. But they were relying on having, uh, you know, like a Canon point-and-shoot camera. Uh, in fact, two of them, one pointing at each page sort of across from each other. And so you set the book up in a V shape on a platen down uh, down to the bottom, and you have one camera pointing at the left page and another camera pointing at the right page. And every time you flipped a page, you would press a button and it would take a picture on each camera. Uh, the problem that they were having though was that uh, you know they were using um, hacked firmware on the cameras to allow them to get um, some of the functionality that they wanted as well as trying to sort of hack together a USB-powered trigger to initiate the, the the shot. And, you know, it worked okay, but it was really challenging because every camera was a little bit different. There were always struggles with trying to get it working. And uh, and it was it was a real hack trying to get it together. Frankly, the rest of the project looked much better than the actual camera setup. And so a couple of years later on, you know, here I'm sitting trying to figure out, okay, I really need to do this. I've got this large collection. I really do need to digitize it. And then this this Raspberry Pi add-on comes out, 12 megapixel camera, which is fine for what I would be, you know, trying to do. I'm not worried about trying to generate a, you know, 60 megapixel image of a book. You know, these books are only printed at so high resolution anyways. And uh, for the cost of it, it's actually pretty reasonable. I think 
you know, you could get a Pi 4 plus this, you know, camera module and a little lens. And you're looking sort of less than $150 Canadian to be able to get one of these. Now, I'll need to have two of them set up so that I can actually get the, you know, one view of one page and another view of the other page. But it's much easier for me to then work on building a trigger to get them in there. These devices are on the network, which means that instead of putting them onto, you know, storing the files, the images onto a SD card, which I then have to take out and manually offload, I can just set it up to automatically send the images that I've taken to my NAS and then I can process them later on, you know, on a more powerful computer and I can just have a lot of that process automated. So there are a lot of advantages for me to being able to do this and it'll allow me to sort of build a good system that that's easily replicable and um, and so if something fails on it, if one of the camera fails, then it's easy for me to just replace that bit and and put a put a different camera module in there. Yeah, but being network connected is a big plus there because mm. then you can basically pipe everything out to a, a single destination rather yeah. than trying to sync up everything from the SD cards, which I imagine would have been quite a hurdle <laughs> on that that hacked together Canon setup as yeah. well because you've got one of each page, so your evens and your odds on two totally different sources, and then you have to try and, and resolve that. Uh, and I imagine there's, there's plenty of, of room for error in that and, and quite a bit of tedium in ensuring that everything does match up and line up as it should. You're right. It was a, a recipe for potential problems. If you, you know, if you scripted it wrong or whatever, then, then it was easy to, to screw that up. Uh, one of the other things that I find appealing about this as well is that later on down the road, if there is an updated camera module that's brought out, maybe they bring out a higher resolution one, maybe they bring out one with a larger sensor on it, then it's easy for me to upgrade it. I can just drop in a new camera module and the existing Pi computer that's actually controlling it, it'll probably still be perfectly fine to be able to handle it. These are going to be so underutilized in terms of their actual processing power that they'll be able to handle future upgrades to that um, sensor. And it'll mean that I don't have to go off and upgrade the whole thing or you know, again, if if it fails, like one of the problems that, that a lot of people were having is that they were using used cameras because those cameras were easily hacked and everything like that. Well, what happens if you can't find a replacement for that camera when it eventually breaks down? That's It's difficult to then, you know, go out there and try and find uh, find another one. And if you can't find the same one, then you may end up having two different cameras pointing at your page, you know, your pages. So you're, you might have a little bit of disparity between the two. So this is there are a lot of advantages for me between this. It's new hardware that I can easily set up and I can do exactly what I want. And then I can also do a lot of processing on the pies themselves. So once the once I finish scanning a, a book, it can even run a bunch of processing on it, maybe to uh, deskew the image or um, you know crop the image automatically and things like that. Like there's options there for doing that kind of thing on the actual Raspberry Pi, and then offload it and even collate them properly when it's uh, when it sends them to the right spot. And down the road, it'd be nice if we can get a little machine learning in there so that you don't even have to press mm-hmm. a button anymore. Once it can see that the pages are, are correctly yeah. lined up, it can just automatically take a yeah. photo and, and give a little green light and let you know you can turn the page again. <laughs> yeah, the other option that I could put in is um, a trigger when the uh, the platen is pushed down. Um, it will, you know, once the platen has gone, you know, is down and, and locked in place, I could have it automatically trigger as well. Like there's all, all sorts of different options that are out there for, for doing it. But yeah, they've... The, uh, there certainly are professional book scanners that are available on the market, but of course they're all being geared towards conservators and libraries and museums and things like that. They're all 
outrageously expensive. And, um, and so they're, they're not, you know, they're not really very appealing to me just because the, the cost of them, I, I can't justify the tens of thousands of dollars for one of these things. Although some of them are impressive because some of them will actually flip the pages automatically for you and everything like that. Like they're, they really are quite impressive. Just something I imagine a, a conservator wouldn't want a machine doing. <laughs> no, but a book, uh, but a library would. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Or yeah, something like Google Books as oh, well. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that a lot of that's automated now, and that's you know, have some robot sitting there uh, flipping the pages. But again, uh, 400 pages an hour at a reasonable pace. I'm comfortable sitting there doing it myself, and and uh, you know, and running it like that. And you've used an actual professional book scanner before, right? Yeah, I'm a professional in like the biggest scare quotes in the world. It's, <laughs> and this is the frustrating thing, right? They're, the University of Ottawa actually has one in their library, so you can walk in. Anybody can go in and bring your own USB key and and uh, start scanning books. And it's it, it certainly it must have cost them a small fortune. Uh, it's certainly one of the old, older ones, and the problems with it is that it, it you lay the book out flat. And it takes a photograph of both pages simultaneously. But then, of course, you have the challenge of holding the pages flat while it's doing that. Um, so if you look at a lot of the books that I've scanned using that um, that scanner, you can see my thumb in the bottom corner of a page trying to hold it flat. So there's things like that that are frustrating. And then the other problem with this thing, you know, it's not, not super fast. Uh, but the, the biggest problem with it is that you finish it and you say, okay, I'm done. I want you to save it to the USB key. And you take something like, um, you know, you take a three or 400 page book and it then spends 45 minutes collating it and generating this PDF file off of the images that you've just, you know, you've just sent it. And it's like, uh, like you just, you sit there and sit there and sit there. There's, you know, it's, it's obviously a very old system and it's very poorly designed. Uh, from a software point of view, so that there are plenty of areas that that thing could be improved, not just from the scanning itself, but also from the the software side of it to generate the the PDF that you kind of, that you end up with. Yeah, I imagine you would have much preferred just a raw dump of all the images. <laughs> exactly. Make your own I think you've already taken the images. You've already stored them somewhere. Just copy them onto my USB key. Yeah, and it it didn't do any sort of OCR either. I ended up no. OCRing that, that PDF for you later. Yeah. And then made it searchable, which was, was fantastic. Exactly. And, you know, that's all stuff that's automated, right? That it is possible to to script all of that and have, you know, I've got a, I've got a Mac mini sitting here as a, you know, as a little file server that, uh, that runs some other automated processes for me in the background. And it's, again, horribly underutilized. It sits there idle most of the time. It would be, trivial for that Mac mini to sit there and say, oh, hey, there's a new project for me to collate. It could, you know, automate the collation of the book together and then also OCR it afterwards and generate a, a searchable PDF for that. So that's all stuff that's possible. And it, it, it certainly would be doable with, you know, without too much effort. So in terms of the the platen in the, the system you'll be building, mm-hmm. what do you have in mind there? Um, it's a V-shaped platen. There are a couple of advantages to having a V-shaped platen. Uh, the first is that the book is in a more natural position. You're not needing to crank the book open flat because books don't really like to lie flat with the, the way the bindings are designed. So this will keep the, the book in a sort of a more comfortable position, if you will, for it. And then also the platen will keep the pages flat, which helps with dealing with skew and and um, warping issues with the uh, with the image. Now, I know that there's a lot of software out there, like there's some really good iOS apps out there right now that'll 
allow you to scan pages and turn them into PDFs. A lot of them have figured out how to take that image that's skewed or warped and actually create a flat image out of it. And they do a reasonable job of it. And that's something that I have actually used a couple of times when I've been in a rush and I've needed something. I'll just use one of the, the many iOS apps out there for doing it. Uh, do you but, have a favorite? Uh, no, no. They're, uh, I, I mean, I have a couple that I use and I wouldn't recommend any of them. They're, they're all, you know, they're all mediocre at best. Um, but uh, there, there certainly are enough out there that do a, an okay job of it. The biggest problem that they have is, you know, obviously the, the image de-skewing and everything like that. That's a challenging problem. So I'm not going to fault them for not doing it perfectly. It's, it's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, I find the biggest problem, again, is how they manage trying to convert a large number of images into a PDF. A lot of them just are unable to handle that well. Yeah, the, even the native notes app on iOS <laughs> can can do this to yeah. some degree. And uh, I now have upwards of five gigs of stuff in my, my sure. notes app, and notes doesn't seem to like that. It, it will frequently <laughs> crash or, or lose its place on me. Although, having read an article recently by by Craig Maud, I have a feeling that, that it might not necessarily have to do with, with how much data I have in there and just be kind of a, the nature of the notes app hmm. itself and that if it gets killed in the background, you come back to your note and you have no idea where you were mm-hmm. in that, you know, 4,000 word long note and you have to scroll back and, and find your place again. Yeah, that's always a challenge with any of this stuff. You're dealing with such a large amount of data, especially if you're dealing with a bunch of images that it's scanned and then OCR'd. It, there's a lot of information there and some of those files are quite large. I, I mean, I scanned in a copy of George Daniel's watchmaking and I think the original is a couple of gigabytes in size. Um, you know, so it is certainly easy to get up to large sized files if you're dealing with it. And so in many cases, what I'll do is I will keep a high res original PDF for if I need to actually go back and look at it again, or there's a particular detail that I need to find or whatever. And then I will generate much lower resolution PDFs that I use on a regular basis, just because again, you know, I put them on my iPad. I'm using it's PDF expert. I think is what I'm, what I'm using on my, uh, my iPad most of the time. And it's, you know, it can handle bigger PDFs, but it's not happy about it. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw a two gig PDF at, uh, at PDF expert, uh, whereas it can easily handle something that's a couple hundred megabytes. And again, the resolution on that is going to be good enough for most of what I need to do. If I really do need to, to see it in proper high res, I can always go back to the original PDF that I generated, or I can go back to the original book. Like these are all books that I own. And the reason I'm scanning them is not because I'm trying to pirate the book. It's because I, I really don't want to carry around 500 books with me every time I go back and forth between home and the studio. And uh, this just makes it a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. As we've touched on in, in previous episodes. So getting back to the, the Platon for a second, will you be making that out of acrylic or, or what's the game plan there? Yeah, the original project um, offers up a couple of different solutions. Some of them are acrylic, some of them are glass. I'll probably experiment a little bit to see which one I'm happy with. It may be that um, that the acrylic just isn't um, clear enough for me. There's certainly some good glass options out there that would uh, would look clearer and also some with anti-reflective coatings on them so that it's easier to see through it and actually see what's going on. Although I suppose I could also use a um, polarizer on the lens itself so that I could get around that problem as well. Um, so there, there are a bunch of different options. I'll, I'll have to experiment and see what works and see what I'm happy with. There's also the weight issue. You've got a platen that's moving up and down. You, um, you know, I'm going to be manually moving it up and down with my arm. So 
I, I'll want to make sure that it's it's well balanced and that it's probably counter weighted as well, so that it's easy to move up and down. And uh, if you're going to do this 400 times an hour, <laughs> you don't want to be, uh, you know, I'm not trying to get a workout from this. There are better ways of getting workouts. Mm. Yeah, and the anti-reflective coating would introduce some some other potential foibles like fingerprints. Like it, it's yeah. not at all easy to to get fingerprints off of any reflective coating. Absolutely. Now, there there are challenges with any of this. Anytime you're dealing with optical quality and you're trying to deal with images, uh, video, I'm having uh, an interesting challenge right now. I'm, try, I'm working on trying to get uh, my camera set up working at my bench, and I've got a setup where you can see me and I can, you know, sort of talking head looking at the camera. I've got my bookshelf behind me with glass doors on it. And that's fine. I can get most of the reflections out. And then I was noticing last night while I was experimenting with a setup that you can see my computer, which is sitting, you know, 10 feet in front of me. And you can see the, you know, my screensaver changing images as it's, you know, as it's sort of going and and I'm working away. So it's like, okay, I got to remember to turn my monitor off when I, you know, when I go and and start shooting and things like that. So there's all these challenges that you have to deal with. And it's, it's just the nature of dealing with photography and and glass and images there's reflections everywhere yeah absolutely now what is the actual open source project that you're going to be riffing off of to to build this uh, the project is hosted at diybookscanner.org and this is a project it's it's had a lot less attention over the last few years the the gentleman who was sort of driving it uh for the first couple of years he's uh, moved on to some other projects and so it's not getting nearly as much love as it used to there was a move at one point to actually sell kits through the site to be able to build some of these yourself. But to be perfectly honest, the physical structure of it is not particularly challenging, especially if you start looking at things like 8020 rail. Uh, it's an extruded aluminum rail that is relatively inexpensive. It's extremely durable, and it's easy to knock together something like this. It's the same stuff that we use for building Rich's large CNC router downstairs. So, I mean, this is a, like, that's a, what is it, like 6 by 12 bed, right? And, you know, this has got a large trunnion running back and forth at high speed while cutting through wood. And it can handle the stress of a little book scanner. You know, you don't necessarily need to use the larger rails either like we did there. So, it's certainly, uh, you know, certainly not that difficult if you're at all sort of builder-minded. It's not particularly challenging to build something that's actually going to work and be stable and hold everything in place and whatnot. For me, the biggest problem was the, f- the photographic element and the electronics and making all that work seamlessly so that it was something that I wasn't fighting with. Because I know that if I'm fighting with it, it's not something I'm going to want to use regularly. Or you come back to it six months later and now all of a sudden something's not working and troubleshooting, it's frustrating. So I want something that's a little bit easier to deal with. And I think this is uh, this Pi option might actually be the way to go. And I see the electronics bench has made its way into the, the studio and is, is all set up and ready to go. So is this uh, the sort of project that will be near term or, or more longer term? Yeah, the electronics bench is uh, Rich's thing. That's uh, that's all of his stuff from uh, from the house. He's uh, he's finally got that up here, and um, that's the electronics that that Rich gets into is a little bit beyond some of the stuff that I I like to do. I prefer things like a Raspberry Pi, which I can just plug stuff into, and uh, and it's modular based. So. Uh, in terms of this project, it's something that I would love to get finished this year if I can, uh, but we'll see. I mean, it, the reality is that I've got a lot of other things on my plate as well. I've also been talking about this project for years as well. So, you know, I at some point I need to actually 
get into this and build it because otherwise it's just never going to fin- you know, be finished. And I do have space now where I have a place that I can put it. That was always so challenge at the house where it's like, okay, I build this thing. Where the heck do I actually put it? You know, now I've got some room up here in the studio. I can actually build this thing and, and uh, set it up. Well, I imagine you'll have it done before. There's a micro four thirds or a full frame sensor <laughs> available for the Raspberry Pi. I hope so. <laughs> so last episode, we touched on pre-sprung balances quite mm-hmm. a bit. And uh, we, we dove into the deep end pretty quick there. And I, I think that's because we've been talking about it quite a bit off air. I'm actually interested to hear uh, more about your initial explorations and and sort of the, the roadblocks that you came across trying to learn more about free-sprung balance wheels on the internet. Uh, yeah, apologies to uh, people who weren't prepared for us to dive into the deep end and some of them drowned on the way to trying to pay attention to what we were talking about. And I, I know that it was a little challenging. That was some of the feedback I got. And uh, we need to we need to find some better images for showing off some of what we're talking about. Uh, because it, I understand it is difficult to follow as we're uh, we're just sort of talking about it. So I guess there, there are two different sort of there are two different approaches to this. One is, am I going to convert a movement that is using a traditional pin regulated balance into a free sprung balance, or am I going to build a movement completely from scratch and I'm going to be working on something that doesn't exist at all yet? So those are sort of the two ways that you can approach doing this. In um, in most ways modifying an existing movement is the easier way to go because you've already got everything else sitting there. You know, the first thing that you have to worry about is rebuilding the balance. And, you know, you have to look at, okay, what are the what are the systems in place for regulating the balance after you've, you know, after you've converted into, into a free-sprung movement? And there are different examples of that out there. If you look at an older watch, you look at something like, let's say, uh, like a Hamilton Railroad watch, like a 992. It's got, you know, whatever, 7, 8, 12 little screws around the outside of your balance. They were using these small washers. And when I say small, I mean they were infinitesimally small. Like you, you sneeze and you're going to send them all over your shop. Or you, you breathe in and you're you going to inhale them. And you're going to inhale them, exactly. And they were being used to affect the timing of that balance. And, you know, modern free-sprung balances have gone to a, um, in, in a lot of ways, a, more, a simpler system where they're often using four masses that they can adjust. So there's things like that where it's like, okay, which system do you want to use? What, what are the advantages and disadvantages to it? Obviously, a lot of modern systems are using uh, a couple of weights to adjust. Now, are they doing that because it's actually a better system or are they doing that because it's easier to manufacture, right? And so... Those are the those are the first questions that you have in terms of how do I make this balance? What are the properties of this balance that are going to uh, improve the timing of the watch? Because you can't use the existing balance that's on there. The next thing that you have to worry about is the hairspring. Can you use the existing hairspring that's in the system? Right, you've got one that's already there if you're if you're modifying an existing movement. So can I use that pin regulated hairspring and then just modify it? And if I can, you know, uh, like one of the things we've talked about is the fact that those pin-regulated hairsprings are in fact longer than necessary to be used as a, as a free-sprung movement. So how do we modify that? How do we figure out, okay, what's the pinning point that I need to use to get that right and get the timing of it correct? You know, what's the best way of actually doing that? 
do you need to adjust the overcoil on the spring in order to get it to function properly and to get it to actually breathe properly as it's as it's moving um you know so those are sort of fundamental questions which are difficult to find good answers to you know if you look at older setups if you look at older watchmaking setups there are these fun little um uh vibration tools that you can get for seeing if your if your setup if your balance is actually vibrating at the correct speed and those are things that that nobody really makes anymore they're they uh, you know most people are just dropping in a replacement balance so it's or a balance complete into a watch so you, you know most watchmakers are not sitting there and and adjusting the actual hairspring for um for the vibrations anymore so those sorts of things are out there but they tend to be bought by collectors and so prices on them go up and they're expensive there there aren't a lot of good modern replicas or replacements for that sort of thing uh, so you don't know how do you how do you sit there and make sure that your hairspring is still vibrating properly and vibrating at the correct rate and then you know that's if you're converting an existing movement into it if you want to try building something yourself from scratch where do you get hairsprings right what those hairsprings are you going to are you going to cannibalize an existing movement for your hairsprings you know if you if you do find a source of sort of raw hairsprings then you're again dealing with the problems of how do I make sure this is the correct length? Where do I pin it properly? How do I put the overcoil in so that it's it's going to be at least a reasonable, you know, facsimile of a a good sort of movement of that spring as it's you know as it's breathing back and forth as it's as it's moving. So there are, there are all these challenges that you run into, and of course, a lot of them have very complex answers. Uh, there is a lot of math that goes into figuring these things out, as we mentioned with the Grand Seiko one. They they had what eighty thousand iterations of of their of their coil design their their hairspring design well eh, that's not really feasible for me to be able to do i'm not going to to uh model that and i'm certainly not going to build 80,000 balance completes to experiment with minor uh changes in the in the springs uh but there there has to be a you know a sort of a reasonable a reasonable balance if you will between complexity and actually building something that's functional and so all of these are, are things that are difficult to find good information on and are actually challenging to, to get good answers on without either sort of it being blown off as, oh, yes, and you do this. You know, you, you balance, you poise the balance or you, you know, you adjust the, the weights or, oh, yes, you, you know, you put it on a vibrating tool and you can see whether it's vibrating accurately. So you, you get sort of the the too simple answer to the problem, but then you can occasionally find the far too complex answer to the problem as well. Um, you know, I've got a book here that I, I think we've we've talked about off air a couple of times that that goes into the maths behind the you know correct hairsprings and shapes and and things like that. And it's like, okay, this is great, but I don't have a PhD in advanced mathematics and it, this just goes too far for me. I can't use this as a tool to actually figure out the answer to the questions that I have. So it's um, it's sort of a long-winded way of saying that there are a lot of things that are, are poorly described. And and uh, even Daniels in Watchmaking doesn't do a great job of describing uh, a lot of these processes and why you want to use one versus another or how you go about it. 
And one point of clarification I'd make with the the timing of washers is I've only ever used those on on one free sprung balance. Mm. So by and large, those are are actually used with with pin regulators uh, more often than not to to try and add weight when the the pin regulator has kind of gone <laughs> gone past the the point of being able to right. to slow it down any further, and then you need to introduce weight to the balance to make it move more slowly, and then you can start to get your your pin regulator closer to, to where it, it ought to be. Um, so it's generally looking at, at correcting issues with the, the balance where too much weight has been been cut away mm. from some of the, the balance screws when the the watches had, say, a balance staff replaced on it and then had needed to be poised again. Right. And then two for making temperature adjustments on, sure. on the split bimetallic rim balance wheels. So you can move one of those, or rather a pair of, of those washers closer to or farther from that split, which will then affect how the, the balance will react to, to changes in, mm. in temperature. Uh, and just uh, another f- sort of fun note, uh, there, are, there are modern interpretations of the vibrating tools where you have the, the master balance under a glass plate and you, you flick the machine with your, well, the tool. It's not a machine <laughs> in the, the machining sense. But uh, when you flick the tool, and the, the two balances will vibrate back and forth. And what you want to see is that they're vibrating synchronously mm-hmm. at, at the exact same rate. And if they're not, they're not, then you have these very fine, it's almost like an alligator clip, but for a hairspring. Yeah. So the incredibly fine point on these. And then you'll slowly move in or out on, on the hairspring to get that optimal length mm-hmm. uh, of the hairspring. Uh, but the these more modern ones are actually came out of Finland. And uh, Kari Votilainen, uh, of course, uses one in his workshop. Mm-hmm. And uh, the it was a, a student at the school who made it. It's basically a, an Arduino-type project with, with some sensors and whatnot. And it'll actually give you a readout of how fast the balance wheel is moving back and forth. And uh, the little company he set up is called Ratasperi. And uh, they, they sell these for about 3,500 euros. Oh, do they? Okay. I, I know I had, seen, um, I had seen that project, I think, when he first started building it. But there were none available on the market. Like it wasn't something that he was marketing and selling. But also, thirty five hundred euros is a little beyond what I'm willing to spend on a on a vibrating tool at this point. Uh, especially, you know, even though the the vintage ones are expensive, they're significantly less expensive than that. But maybe, you know, maybe with some of the Raspberry Pi Pi stuff I'm playing around with, maybe I'll uh, try and build an Arduino or Pi version of something like that because it's it's just using a little optical sensor to uh, you know a little laser sensor to actually. Uh, check the vibration of the uh, the balance. So maybe I'll maybe I'll work on building something uh, homegrown that I can do that with. Because one of the other problems with the vintage ones is that they are locked to a particular um, a particular frequency, frequency mm-hmm. yeah, a particular rate. So if you're building a watch that's eighteen thousand vibrations per hour, then that's great if you, that's what your vibrating tool does. But if you decide that you're going to change that up and you want to do a different rate, then all of a sudden you need a different vibrating tool to be able to handle that. So it's not ideal from that point of view. Yeah, the cost very quickly surpasses the, yeah. the cost of one of these, these tools from Radisperi, which exactly. will actually give you the readout of, of how fast your particular balance you're using is running. So okay. if, if you're currently running at 18,600, then you know you need to... Slow it down just a little. Exactly. And I, I know the, the microset 
watch timer has uh, an add-on for measuring the the rate of a pendulum using sort of mm. a laser brake system. Right. Uh, so I don't know if it's possible to measure the the rate of a, a balance wheel using that. You probably have to do a bit of jerry rigging to to pull it off, but yeah. uh, that might be feasible too. And the microset I think starts around six hundred US. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if it would work or not. I I think it's you know, and again you said this like this other project is has done it through, you know, an Arduino and a couple of, you know, again, it's probably just a, a little uh, light, light gate that's doing it. I've used similar light gates for doing limit switches on my CNC equipment as well as doing uh, indexing on the head of the spindle. So as the spindle spins around it, uh, it trips the light gate and it, it gives an accurate RPM of the spindle so that it can do threading and things like that, which are tied to the uh, the motion of the carriage is tied to the the RPM of the actual piece, so that's it's important to have good, accurate indexing of your spindle, and so you know I've used similar kinds of things like that, and and those are spinning, you know, up to sort of five thousand RPM, so they're they're certainly able to handle higher frequencies without any issue. The really low budget take I've seen on that for for the Sherline lathes and, and mills is just a little piece of paper you can print off and, and cut out and, <laughs> and stick. On and uh, as long as your lights are operating at, at the correct frequency, then uh, you'll get a, a solid black line. I believe it is right uh, for whatever frequency the, your your spindle <laughs> is is running at. Yeah, this this is a little more sophisticated than that because it it's able to adjust for variances in RPM because of load. Mm. Uh, so as the cutter is under load, uh, the RPM may change, and so this is able to actually compensate for that as it's as it's turning a thread. Uh, in in the midst of a cut, like it's not just at the beginning of the cut. It says, "All right, that's it. That's the speed you're going. That's that's how fast we're going to move the cutter." It'll actually adjust in in the mid cut so that it can um, it can uh, it can vary that speed, and you actually get very accurate threads out of it because of that. In fact, that's one of the the reasons that I chose to uh, to build a CNC lathe specifically for doing threading is because it's the the threads that you get out of it are are extremely accurate if you know how to how to program it properly. It's nice to have that direct feedback loop. Yeah. There's a reason you went with light gates over, say, magnetic switches. Yeah, they're far more accurate. And, uh, and they're also, when you're, when you're dealing with a heavy machine with a bunch, of, um, a bunch of steel around, and then you're also often throwing off chips of steel, uh, magnetic stuff tends to, to get gummed up with fine particles and, or not-so-fine particles of, of metal that are coming off of your machine. So... Uh, light gates tend to work very well because of that, and they uh, they tend to have less interference because of that. Also, because they're optical, you um, you get less electromagnetic interference from uh, from them as well. Because again, as you start having motors moving things around and whatnot, you you do get some electromechanical interference from uh, from that as well. So flipping back to the the free sprung balances, mm-hmm. one of the convenient things about switching from something that's pin regulated over to free sprung and the fact that you have that extra length on your hairspring mm-hmm. is that you actually if you, if you want to maintain that same length of hairspring you need to make the balance a little bit heavier so depending on how much weight you add with your inertial masses you could actually just leave the the hairspring at the length that it is and then right. add on your your masses in whatever fashion that is either threaded holes threaded rods mm-hmm. or little stumps with sort of half moon shaped discs that that you can spin inwards or outwards, sort of the the gyromax style. Yeah, 
Um, it's not quite a, a half moon. I, I don't don't know a better way to de- describe that right now. What what is the yeah, actual sort of geometric a cam term? shape? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird a weird shape. It's I mean it is sort it's, of it's circular. a circle with a, a side lobed off, but, yeah. it, but it's not a semicircle. No, it's not a semicircle. But it's and also the uh, the point of rotation is often shifted from the center as well, uh, so that it's not not necessarily shifting around its center point or what you would think of as its center point of weight because you do want it to to be off. Sort of the the mass to be off center from where it, where you're moving it, right? Well, that's that's why you lob off half of the yeah, well, not half, a, <laughs> a third, a third of the the circle. But you can, there are also free sprung balances with eccentric screws in them. Sure, There's, there's all manner of different ways to do this. All you're trying to do is redistribute the way that the mass is distributed around the the balance wheel. So, did you find any any good information in your explorations? No. I, I mean, you, you know, you can piece together a lot of a lot of this from a lot of different sources. I suspect if you want a a well thought out, well uh, presented sort of information on how to do this, you need to go to you know a school that's actually going to be teaching you this, right? So, like uh, we've talked about um, uh, Heinrich and his school in Switzerland. You know, if he, I know that he teaches some of this as one of the elements of one of his courses. And you could go to him and say, listen, I want to come over, spend two weeks. I want to, you know, I want to go through what's involved in actually making this watch into a pre-sprung balance. Like, I want to convert this balance over. And he'd be happy to set you up and, and teach you a course on explicitly how to do this. Uh, but I haven't seen really sort of concise written information on on this, you know, documenting it or even, you know, good video series on how to do this. Um, it would be, I would love to do that. I I mean, I understand I understand the, the challenges of the economics of building a pay course for this sort of thing. How many people out there are actually going to pay you to to see that course? It's It's pretty limited, right? It's going to be a lot of time and effort to build something like that. And you're probably never going to recoup your investment of time and energy to actually build a course like that. So I get it. Um, it's often easier just to teach somebody and say, okay, yes, come to my cl- come to my school. I will show you how to do that. I'm sure if you go through some of the advanced WOSTEP programs, there are, you know, they will teach you how to do this as well. But again, I don't necessarily have four or five years to go through, you know, and live in Switzerland and, and go through the WOSTEP program and if I could get in and get to, you know, get through all of it. Uh, so the, there are challenges in doing that with, with what's out there. And this is where, you know, it would be nice to see some of these, these projects, you know, that are sort of trying to teach and trying to maintain traditional watchmaking skills. It would be nice to see these sorts of advanced topics being discussed. Uh, because obviously some of the other things like micromechanics, uh, micromachining, sorry, are being talked talked about and they're being discussed, but some of these other aspects are not being discussed well. Yeah, Wostep would approach this from more of a, a ground up mm-hmm. perspective uh, as opposed to doing a conversion. So right. you'd, essentially you would decide on the form your balance wheel is going to take. You would machine out that form. Mm-hmm. You'd make your balance staff decide on its form based on the sorts of shock protection you're going to give that. And then you would pair that to your hairspring and, and vibrate it, sure. as we, we've already sort of addressed. And I think that's the the approach that you'd 
receive from a, a WOSTEP style education uh, as opposed to a conversion. And the nice thing about that is that you could then also use that information and that knowledge to do a conversion mm-hmm. if you wanted to. And frankly, I, I, I mean, I don't really care one way or the other. I, I, again, I could use the information that I learned from doing a conversion to build one from scratch as well. Right. All the, uh, you know, both, both approaches are fine for me. But again, trying to, trying to find that information is challenging. And that's where it would be, it would be nice to, to sort of have, have a little bit better discussion about it. Or even even a forum, right? Even somebody, you know, watchmakers talking about it and saying, "Oh, this is what, you know, this is what we're talking about doing. This is how we're planning on going about it." And um, you know, even doing it as sort of a community project where people are actually walking through how to do this, you know, as they're as they're doing it. And again, part of it, I, I get that a lot of this is not necessarily economically sound watchmaking, right? You're you know a traditional watchmaker who's servicing watches is not going to do this to the watches that they have coming in, right? The watches they have coming in, their goal is to service that watch, clean it, you know, time it, make sure that it goes out the door so the customer is happy with it. Um, So I get that for the majority of the industry, they're not interested in it. And then from the manufacturer's point of view, a lot of this stuff is, is sort of irrelevant once you start manufacturing in large quantities because if you're if you're going to do like Hamilton in this case, if you're going to do that, they've already figured that out. They've got people that have figured out what it needs to look like and how to mass produce it. And they're not going to talk to Chris Manning in Ottawa about how they do that. And I'm not sure that it would necessarily be useful information anyways, because they're thinking about it from the point of view of how do we make a, you know, how do we make a hundred thousand of these watches? And that's not necessarily useful information to me. Color me pessimistic, but, but actually doubt that there, there is necessarily anyone at Hamilton who, who knows how to do it. No, you're right. It's probably at a somebody at, at a clay, and that's the thing. I don't, I don't have the resources of the Swatch Group behind me to uh, to do that with, and and you know, again, there there are people out there that that know how to do this, right? You know, you you go into a, an FP Jorn or a Grubel Forzi or a Kari Vudelainen or you know any one of uh, you know name your high end independent watchmaker, and there are people there who know how to do this, right, and know how to set this stuff up, uh, but. It doesn't make sense for them economically to talk to somebody like me and actually teach me how to do that sort of thing over the internet, right? Their their business is making watches for themselves, not trying to educate the world on how to make watches. But the results of, of a free sprung balance speak for themselves in, sure. in the long term performance. And there's a reason why like the greatest of the greats of the independents have all gone that route. Mm-hmm. From Daniels through to Jean. And Roger W. Smith and Votila and all these guys, yeah. all using free spring balances. Yeah. And uh, Dufour actually ran into a bit of, of trouble trying to to get his balances done in, in a free sprung manner. He approached Patek Philippe when mm. he was working on the simplicity, and, and they shut him down yeah. as he he wanted to use the Gyromax <laughs> style. Sure. And uh, they they simply said no. And the funny thing is, even with uh, Patek Philippe, they're not making their balance completes in-house. They're actually being done by Niverox. Right. And Niverox is owned by the Swatch Group. So, I mean, really, the, the knowledge base for a lot of this is is very concentrated within mm-hmm. ETA and then these few niche independents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is where it would be great to be able to get the information out there because it would uh, get it out of the sort of concentrated hands of the Swatch Group. And, uh, you know, because, again, they're not, they're not interested in helping the community build these, build this knowledge and maintain this knowledge. And who knows, 100 years from now, is anybody going to know how to do it, right? 
just because you've got a handful of people now in these independents who can do it, there's no guarantees that they're going to be around, you know, 100 years from now, or there are people with that knowledge who are going to be around 100 years from now. There are plenty of things that I've sort of tried to recreate uh, over the years, things like um, like guilloche and enamel work and yellow. You know, 100 years ago, you could walk into a factory in, you know, in any one of a number of jewelry centers around the world, and there are people, there would be a dozen people there who would know exactly what to do in any of those, you know, in any of those cases. Like you, you want to create yellow and put it onto your cigarette case. That's great. There are 10 guys standing over there in this factory who can do that for you. All right. You want to engine turn this cigarette lighter. Great. There are, you know, we've got a, we've got a room full of people who are turning these things out. Um, whereas today, there are so few of us that it's most people have no idea even what the art is anymore. So the next thing we were going to talk about in our, our show notes here was a, a new release from Ferdinand Baltude. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we've gone so long with our, our follow-up that uh, we're, we're going to have to save this for next episode. But uh, this piece, too, does does include a, a free-sprung balance. Uh, there'll be a, a lot to unpack here. Certainly, they tick off all sorts of things we, we've touched on. No, this is this watch is is off hours bingo watch. This has everything in it. This has a free sprung balance in it. It has a rouleau triangle in it. it it's got um, it's got constant force mechanisms. Uh, it, this this has the whole the, the whole kitchen the enamel sink dial. In it. it's enamel dial, laser etched yeah. ceramic. It's, uh, it's the, full nine yards. They made this watch for us to talk about. I mean, they they obviously were listening to off hours and said you know what, let's just take everything these guys have been talking about for the last three years and just throw it all into a watch. And, and there's just too much to unpack here in the time we have left. <laughs> so, so we will we, we will touch on this in the, in the very near future. But we, we may have a, a surprise in, in store in, in the meantime. Yeah, it's not going to be the next episode we talk about it. It may not even be the episode after that because uh, we do have a guest on our next episode. So looking forward to uh, putting that out into the world. And uh, we've, we had a great conversation with a watchmaker we've spoken about before on the show. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to to putting that episode out. So stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.